So once again, we're thinking about Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue to think about growing, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with each part working properly, making the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Very excited about having the opportunity here to think a little bit about growing in adversity. And I want to share with you an important passage. We'll be working in the Word of God to talk about what we do in times of tribulation and difficulty. And if my wife would sit down, we could start Bible class, but I'm not going to call attention to the fact that Dina is late to class and that I had to wait on her. I'm not even going to say anything about that. And maybe someone will, Sean, can you do marital counseling afterwards? Let's see if we can begin in a word of prayer. Brother Drew, would you lead us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to think about the word of God together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here this Lord's Day to hear more for what Mark has to say with growth. Please be with him as he presents to us lessons from your word. Please be with us that we may apply these things so we may grow to shine our lights in this dark and sinful world. Most importantly, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Is that let me pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, brother. I'm going to begin by talking about some significant and really heavy-duty adversity. This is a page from a very famous person's diary from February the 14th, 1884. That big X there and the expression, the light has gone out of my life, was written on that day because that man on that day, his mother died. And a few hours later, his wife died she was giving birth to their first child. The two women that were the most important in his life both passed away within a matter of hours. He was devastated by that. In fact, as a result of what happened, he gave up an aspiring and promising political career and went out west. He went to the Dakotas where he owned a ranch. And he decided he was done with politics and done with that former life. He said, I'm just going to be a cowboy. Some of you, if you're familiar with American history, know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite American president. He was an amazing and wonderful president, amazing and wonderful man. When he got to the Dakotas, several people said, I thought you were going to do great things in politics. He said, I'm never doing any of that. I'm never going to do any of that. I'm just going to be a cowboy. Well, of course, you know that things changed. Teddy's life changed, and after a few years of being a cowboy, he returned to New York and ultimately became the governor of New York and then the vice president of the United States and then the youngest president the United States has ever had. He's an incredible man. It's an incredible story. But a piece of that that a lot of people don't know is that there are several times in Teddy's life when, for example, he was campaigning out west, that he would look fondly at the cowboys who had come to hear him speak and he would say something to an aide about, I miss that cowboy life. I miss that cowboy life. There's a famous occasion where he was supposed to be giving a campaign speech and some of the cowboys came and said, we've got bacon, we've got beans, come have cowboy breakfast. And he just left everybody and went and sat with the cowboys again. So what happened in Teddy's life was a terrible moment of adversity, a terrible thing that he recorded with that awful black axe. But as a result of that, he ended up President of the United States. But even as President of the United States, sometimes he looked back fondly and said, I just wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done that. 
And I use that just to illustrate all the twists and turns that life can take and the different directions that it can go. I'm not sure how many people end up being President of the United States and they really kind of wish, well, they really kind of wish they'd just been a cowboy. And I'm not sure that in your life I can guarantee you in all the twists and turns of life that you're going to be here and you're going to be there and in some place you're going to be in the White House. I don't know about that. But I am going to try to work with you today to say that God is working in your life. And as God works in your life, even in times of adversity and trial, you can grow and be closer to the Lord and be a stronger Christian. And you can be a better disciple and have influence on others for the kingdom of God. The passage that I want to use to talk about that is a passage in Acts 16. In Acts the 16th chapter... In Acts chapter 16, I want to read a passage that sometimes we sort of skip over a little bit. This is a passage about second choices. This is a passage about adversity and not getting what you want. This is a passage about how life changes as God works in our lives. In Acts 16, 6, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, Acts 16, 7, They attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The part of that passage that sparkles is the man of Macedonia. Come and help us. What we say about that passage is that this is the beginning of the gospel spread into Europe because it is. It is the place where the gospel crosses into Europe for the very first time, changing literally all of world history from this point forward. And we talk about the church at Philippi because that's where Paul's going to go. What an amazing congregation that was and how much they helped Paul. The conversion of Lydia, the Philippian jailer, and all of those great things. But maybe what we've failed to notice is... Paul didn't want to go there. You ever notice that? Paul didn't want to go there. It was his second choice. The text says clearly that we went through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, verse 6, and we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. We came to Mysia. We attempted to go to Bithynia. Paul rolled the missionary map out, and he said to Silas, I'll tell you where we're going. We're going to Bithynia. And God said, no, you're not. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. But through some difficulties and through some trials, it's very clear that Paul's not entirely sure where God wants him to go. He ends up in Philippi. And this morning I'm pretty sure that in an audience of this time I'm talking to some people who are finding themselves in Philippi when they really wanted to go to Bithynia. You know some adversity. I didn't get into that school that I applied for. I always thought by now we'd have a baby. I just knew by this point in my life, I'd be married. I didn't get that promotion. Lots of times in life, we think we're going in this direction and we end up somewhere else. We thought we were going to be a cowboy. Maybe we end up being president. Maybe sometimes we thought we were going to be president. End up being a cowboy. We just don't know where life will take us. What are we going to do in those trials? What are we going to do in all of the adversity that can happen when we don't get our first choice? 
really tried to stress a lot this weekend that life as a Christian is about the work of God in our lives and that we begin to work that, particularly as we're involved in daily Bible reading, and we want to share that in evangelism. But in times of adversity, it can be very difficult. When God says, don't go to Bithynia, when that door closes and it is clear we are not going to Bithynia, how can we grow and strengthen our relationship with God even in Philippi. My good friend Ken Williver did some writing about this and it really triggered some thoughts and I'm just going to spend some time working through Acts 16 to help us understand how to grow in times of adversity. And I'm going to start by just saying this. When things seem bad, when things seem all to be going wrong, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to continue to hope in the work of God. This is Paul's standard operating procedure. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says this to the Thessalonican brethren. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, We remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. One translation renders that, We think about your faithful work and your loving deeds and your enduring hope. And if you look carefully at that verse, you'll see that all of those things, the trinity of hope, faith, and love, all of those are actions. They are not just emotions. They're verbs. We don't feel faith. We don't feel love. We don't feel hope. Well, okay, maybe in some ways we do have some emotions and feelings that go with all three, but they are not primarily feelings. In fact, if somebody says... I just don't love my wife anymore. What are we going to say about that? Well, you need to repent and start doing that. Because love is something that we do. Faith is something that we exercise. And now I'm saying in the same way, hope is not an emotion. This is not just about feeling warm and sunny in our inside and then we feel better. It isn't about how we feel. It is about perseverance. It is about continuing to believe in the work of God in our lives. And perseverance is all over this text in Acts 16. Look in Acts 16 again. In Acts the 16th chapter, notice that there's a ton of starts and stops all over the place. We tried to go, verse 6 to Phrygia and Galatia. Then we had come up to Messiah. We attempted to go to Bithynia. Didn't know what to do about that. We had to go by Messiah and down to Troas. They just keep on persevering, keep on trying, keep on hoping in the work of God. And that is absolutely true all through the Bible. Abraham and Sarah don't get that boy that they long for until they're very old. Caleb has to wait 40 years to get his farm in the land of Canaan. Well, he doesn't give up. What about that story of Ruth and Naomi? Remember what Naomi says? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter and empty. And it is a long time before she's full again. We have to continue to trust in God. When life is crummy, and it's uncomfortable, and things didn't work out, and life wasn't fair, and I got betrayed by that relationship, and I never expected to be where I am because I wanted to go to Bithynia. What we need to do is continue to hope in the Lord. We keep believing that God is at work in our lives, and that God will work this out because we know 
God brings all things to Him. And as a result of that, we know we continue to serve the Lord, will please Him. And sometimes that is hard. And sometimes that means about all we can do is put one foot in front of another one day at a time, one hour at a time, one more minute at a time. But it means that hope is a choice. And we choose to believe God is at work. The place I think that helps us the most with that is the book of Psalms. If you'll step into your Old Testament in the 33rd Psalm, for example, sometimes we forget that the Psalms were not written, all of them, by a shepherd boy on an idyllic evening in Israel as he stared up at the stars. And not all of the Psalms were written by a king in a palace surrounded by mercenary guards and all the accoutrements of royalty. A whole bunch of the Psalms were written by a young man who was being pursued by the king of Israel named Saul, full of hate and wickedness and trying to murder him. And that psalmist says in Psalm 33 and verse 17, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, Psalm 33 and 17. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. Indeed, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and He is our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Those were hard times for David. It was not about how he felt. It was about his decision to continue to lean upon the Lord, to lean upon the Lord's promises to him, and to continue to serve God even though everything seemed to be going wrong. In fact, a big piece of that is recognizing that there are some things that are just out of our control. Visit that text again in Acts 16 and notice who is running the show. Did you underline in your Bible the repetitive phrase? Anytime something occurs in the Bible over and over again, usually that's because God is doing everything He can to get us to pay attention to that. And in this section, Acts 16, 6 to 10, one of the most important phrases is the phrase, Holy Spirit, which occurs in verse 6 having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, Acts 16, 7 then, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That's an important principle for us to develop and to remember. We are not in control of everything. And I have been very critical of some of those denominational tracts that say things like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Because I think in some ways what non-Christians think that means is if I become a Christian, there's this blueprint, there's this map, and God will tell me what color socks to wear today and everything else about God has this plan for my life. That's certainly not true, but I fear sometimes my criticism of that idea has caused people to imagine God has no plan for my life. That's not true either. God is at work. God has things He wants us to do, people that He wants us to influence, situations and circumstances that He's putting us in, in the name of the kingdom. God is working and that does mean I'm not in charge of everything. And that's hard. That is really hard for Americans. 
I'll give you an illustration of how hard that is for Americans. I'm willing to guess that nearly everybody here has some kind of smartphone, some kind of digital device, and I'm willing to guess that on your smartphone, you have a weather app. In fact, some of us weather geeks <clears throat> have more than one. We have all kinds of weather apps and Doppler radar and all kinds of stuff. Can I ask you this? Why do you have a weather app on your phone? We have a weather app on our phones when we get up in the morning look at the weather and see what the weather's going to be because that helps us know what to wear today, right? I saw an interesting interview with an anthropologist who is an expert in third world countries and he was talking about some of those things and he talked about how people in third world countries don't watch the weather, don't listen to the weather man, and don't have weather apps. I thought that was a little odd and then he explained why. It doesn't make any difference what the weather is. They only have the clothes that they have. If it's raining, this is what they wear. You know, if it's cold today, this is what they wear. If it's hot today, this is what they wear. It's all they have. So there's no point in looking at the weather because I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and work in the rice paddies all day long. That's what they're doing in the Republic of China right now. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do my job in Bombay, India. That's what they're doing right now. I'm going to get up and I'm going to beg on the streets of Manila in the Philippines. It's what they're doing right now. Whether it's raining or cold or the sun shining, this is their life. They have no ability to change their clothing, to be more comfortable despite what the weather is. How different that is for Americans. The reason we look at weather apps is because we want to control. We want to control how we feel. We don't want to be uncomfortable. So if it's going to be cold, I'm going to put on a jacket. If it's going to be really cold, I'm going to put on a coat. If it's going to be really, really cold, then I'm going to put on my parka. Oh, come on, Arizonas. You have a parka and you got to wear it like two days last year? Yes, yes, okay. We want to control. I have hunting gear so that all of my camo matches because no self-respecting deer would possibly be shot by somebody wearing clashing camo. So I have to put on all this gear in exactly the right kind of fashion. And there's no cold like sitting in a deer blind at 4 a.m. and it's 15 degrees in Kansas and the wind is blowing. I want to be warm. I want to be comfortable. I want to control my environment. We need to think about that. Paul recognizes in Acts 16, 6 that the Holy Spirit is in charge. Paul recognizes in Acts 16, 7 that it's the Spirit of Jesus that's running things. So all of these mantras that are so popular in our world today, I can do anything if I just believe in myself. I am the master of my own fate. No, you're not. I can plan and I can decide, and I can make full preparations, and then everything that I was going to do can get crushed by events far out of my control. Didn't I have really good friends who had planned to go to Israel? And on Saturday morning, a war broke out, and their flight on Monday was canceled. And it's not just vacations that have been crushed. Come on. Didn't a global pandemic teach us? We're not in charge. In James chapter 4, in James chapter 4, the, James says this about control. In James chapter 4, in James chapter 4 and verse 13, come now you who say, James 4 and 13, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. 
You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Maybe Mark Roberts' International East Texas version would say, you don't know what tomorrow will bring even if you have a weather app on your phone. We're not in control. What's your life? It's a mess, verse 14, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we, live, we will live, and then we will do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and your boasting as such is just evil. Now, I don't hear people say, if it's the Lord's will, very often. And I don't think James means that you have to offer that as the caveat, as the fine print. Anytime you're announcing your plans, you better say on the back side of that, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. That isn't what he means. He absolutely does mean, though, that that needs to be uppermost in our minds, that we are not in charge, that God's will is going to be done. And as I turn back to Acts 16, maybe one of the things that I ought to notice about that is that God never explains himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't say to Paul, let me tell you why you can't go to Bithynia. It's too dangerous there. The Holy Spirit never says, I've got somebody else who will do a better job preaching and teaching there. And Peter actually does mention brethren in Bithynia later. But they aren't brethren that Paul taught the gospel to. Maybe there was somebody better to go and do that. Holy Spirit doesn't say that. Maybe, maybe the Lord wished that Paul could go to Bithynia, but needed him even more in Philippi. God knew the answer why the Spirit of Jesus, Acts 16, 7, did not allow them to go to Bithynia. But Paul didn't know that answer and he didn't need to know the answer. It was enough to know. God is in control. I'm doing the will of God. And as I do the will of God, it's just remarkable how things will work out. When I get my second choice, I can glorify God. So Paul doesn't get to go to Bithynia. And he sees that vision of the man of Macedonia. What happens next? Paul goes to Philippi. And there's a bunch of Jewish women down by the river, which probably means there was not a large Jewish community in Philippi. And Paul teaches Lydia the gospel. She and her household become the first Christians in Europe. In a little bit, Paul ends up casting out a demon. And as a result of that, he's put in jail. Watch carefully here. The fact that God is in control doesn't mean that your life is always going to be amazingly perfect. God being in control can mean that you're singing hymns at midnight in a Philippian prison. But God bails Paul and Silas out of that prison in a powerful way. And the Philippian jailer and his household are baptized in the same hour of the night. And the gospel has caught fire now in Philippi. What happens to that church in Philippi? It becomes one of the most valuable congregations in Paul's life. Look at Philippians 4 with me. In Philippians 4 and verse 1. What does Paul say about this church? In Philippians 4 and in verse 1, he says this, Therefore, my brothers, Philippians 4 and verse 1, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Count the compliments in that verse. Brothers, love, long for, joy, crown, my beloved. It is not just that the gospel broke new ground into the West here. It is that Paul here finds brethren who sustain and help him financially, 
But even beyond that, these brethren will send Epaphroditus to see about him. In all of Paul's life, the ups and downs, I'm going to say a lot more about that in our second worship service. In all the bad things that go wrong in Paul's life, the Philippian brethren sustain him. God knew that Paul would need a Philippi. God got Paul to Philippi. I'll show you something else. Did you notice the change in Acts 16 in the pronouns? In Acts 16, it's they. They, they, they. But in Acts 16 and verse 10, all of a sudden it says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, we sought to go into Macedonia. We who? For the first time in the book of Acts, there's an additional part of the traveling party. It's not just Paul and Silas. It's Paul, Silas, and Luke. Luke is the we. This one who will go on from here to write the amazing gospel of Luke. And from there, he will write the sequel to Luke, what he really wants to pen, and that he wrote Luke just so he could write the book of Acts. The book of Acts is probably the most important book of the Bible. In Acts 16 and verse 10, for the first time, Paul meets Luke. If Paul goes to Bithynia, does he ever meet Luke? Not only does he meet someone who's going to write some amazing New Testament documents, Paul meets somebody who is a physician. And as you read about Paul's life, there is some physical persecution that comes his way. And from time to time, I wonder if it is his trusted friend and personal doctor, Luke, who patches him up after the beatings and the stonings and all of the persecution that he endured. Is it Luke that keeps Paul going? Does Luke ever hear gospel preaching and decide somebody needs to write an orderly account for his friend Theophilus if it's not Paul in Philippi? And then he follows that up with that incredible book of Acts. Look what happened when Paul said, when God told Paul, don't go there, I'm sending you here. Isn't that the pattern throughout all of Bible history? Joseph saves the promises of God by going to Egypt. That probably wasn't his first choice, being sold into slavery. God did something incredible there. Philip's first choice in Acts 8 was Samaria. And the work was going great there. And God said, nope, need you to go down to the desert. I wonder if Philip was standing in the middle of nowhere saying, God, why am I here as a chariot appeared in the distance with the man reading Isaiah 53. How often does something make no sense in our lives at all and we're mad and we're frustrated because we just knew Bethania was the place that we should be. And then as time passes, suddenly we see God was at work. And as I continue to draw closer to the Lord and serve Him in a better way, God's plan becomes clear that I can do great things for God in Philippi. I didn't have to go to Bithynia after all. And that would lead me then to say this. What we really are looking for is some things about contentment. 
It's Philippians 4 that I'm going to read here. In Philippians 4 and verse 11, you can mark Philippians 4 because in our worship hour, we're just going to work out of these passages a lot. But I'll, I'll give you a sneak peek of coming attractions in Philippians 4 and verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know how in every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Given some of the things that happened in Paul's life, you might expect that he's not telling the truth here. I mean, people are mean to Paul in the book of Acts. And there are times that he wants to go here, Bithynia. He doesn't get to go there at all. In Romans, he says, I can't wait to come see you in Rome on the way to Spain. Paul never gets there because he's arrested and ultimately tried and executed in the capital of Rome. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say, I'm okay? I've learned to be content. I think Paul has learned to be content because he sees that God is in control He's determined to hope in the work of God, and he realizes wherever he is, he can bring glory to God. Let me give you a couple of key ideas that will help you with that. I think first and foremost, sometimes we need to learn to open our mouths and pray our disappointment. God knows how we feel when we don't get to go to Bithynia. And it's okay in reverence and fear to tell God about that. Read the book of Psalms. Lots of times David expresses his frustration, his exasperation, how he's on the edge. He doesn't think he can go on any further. Lord, why am I here? Why am I not in Bithynia? What's going on? David's not afraid to pray. God knows how David feels already anyway. So instead of running away from God, God David brings his troubles to the Lord. You and I could do the same. Open your mouth. Pray your frustration. Secondly, close your mouth and refuse to complain. Remember what Paul tells the Philippian brethren in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14? In Philippians 2 and 14 he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, when we don't get what we wanted, when we don't get to go to Bithynia, what do we do? We tell everybody how God let us down. Then we get on social media and tell everybody on the whole world wide web how mad we are that life didn't treat us the way we wanted to be treated. Somehow that doesn't seem to plumb with Philippians 2.14, does it? Look at me. I didn't get the class I wanted. I didn't get to go where I wanted. Our trip got canceled. My life is the very worst thing possible. Where's the hope in that? Open your mouth and pray to God. Close your mouth and refuse to complain to others. And then finally, open your eyes and say, How can I glorify God in this situation? How can I glorify God in Philippi? What's amazing to me about Paul is that Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't say to Silas, all right, this is it. I can't know where to go. God doesn't seem to know where we're supposed to go. We're just wandering around. If God isn't going to be clearer about this, I'm done with this missionary thing. Nope. He just keeps putting one foot in front of another one day at a time. I'm going to serve the Lord no matter what. You still in Philippians? Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. In Philippians 1 and verse 20, in Philippians 1 and verse 20, as Paul writes from prison, he says, It's my eager expectation and hope, Philippians 1.20, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ shall be honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Maybe the reason I'm so frustrated when I don't get to go to Bithynia because I wanted to go to Bithynia so very much is because for me to live is Mark. And I want what Mark wants. And I want to do life the way Mark wants to do life. And if God doesn't give me my way, then I'll just throw a little hissy fit about it. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm living, I'm going to be involved, verse 22, in fruitful labor. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. Paul says, if the sun comes up for me tomorrow morning, I'll be glorifying God. And if when I open my eyes, I see the Lord Jesus face to face, I will be glorifying God. So it doesn't matter where I am, I'm going to let God work in my life. Whether I find myself in Philippi or in Bithynia, I'm going to glorify God. So where are you in your life today? I cannot promise you. That if you have adversity and trouble and you're having to accept your second choice, that that means you're going to end up in the White House as one of the most famous presidents in the United States. Not everybody gets a second choice and through adversity becomes president. But all of us, whether we get our first choice in Bithynia or our second choice in Philippi or our 500th choice in Phoenix, Arizona, all of us can glorify God where we are. All of us can choose hope. All of us can continue to see the work of God in our lives. All of us can grow, even in adversity. Would you pray with me, please? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful that you are with us, that you are in control, and we ask that you bless us with the ability to glorify you wherever we are. In Christ we pray. And amen. Thank you so much.